Hello, Warren. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. I think you might be uh, the person that I'm interviewing with the most degrees that we've had on this show, which is very exciting. I have a lowly BA. <laughs> <laughs> or should we say in the process of receiving the most degrees out of anyone? Can oh, you, you give us a quick uh, rundown of all of the degrees you're currently working toward? Sure. Um, so I got my Bachelor's of Arts in Economics. Okay. Uh, then I went on to pursue my MD-PhD at the University of Michigan. Um, I successfully defended my PhD in 2017. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I have three months left in my medical degree. They're withholding both until I finish both, so I should get those uh, in 2020. <laughs> And uh, I'm currently working towards my MPhil in medical science here at uh, at Cambridge, and I'll get that in a few months, hopefully. Wow, I think you will. Oh, thank you. That's a lot of things on your plate right now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to be managing totally well, so that's well, super you. exciting. Um, so you are one of the few people I've interviewed who does primarily lab work at Cambridge, right? Right. And is this an extension of what you've been doing in your MD-PhD, or is it unrelated? Um, what's the relationship between the two? Sure. Um, quick answer is yes, uh, it is an extension. So uh, for my PhD, much of it was also wet lab in the lab, uh, but it was with mouse models of obesity. Here in Cambridge, it's still wet lab in the lab, uh, but we're working more towards the translational aspect. So. Uh, what people mean by translational research is research that has direct human consequences and looks at direct human materials. So we're looking at uh, human brains and analyzing those brains versus mouse brains, but also getting the, uh, the blood and the genetic uh, information from human patients, um, hopefully recalling those patients to our clinics after we do the uh, the laboratory analysis, uh, and then seeing how the uh, the laboratory um, results, how that impacts their uh, their lives, um, or have impact their lives growing up. So, Interesting. yeah. Do you have a preference between mice and human brains? Uh, sure. So uh, you can. Uh, we only get postmortem human brains, which is uh, is appropriate. Wow. Um, but uh, the uh, the issue is that it's. Um, not very reliable, just because there are a lot, uh, few hurdles that you need. One needs to jump through to get human brains. They're also uh, they're Which also is maybe a good thing. It's I a guess. great thing. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. it's it's it should make them easy access. Absolutely appropriate. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, quite a bit easier to get mouse brains. Um, you also know exactly what the mouse is in terms of genetics, um, how old they were, any uh, illnesses or comorbidities that mouse had. And so the results that you get from analyzing a mouse brain is you just, you're a lot more confident with the results. Um, but of course, we're not, you know, studying mouse disease. We're studying human disease in mouse. So the, uh, the human disease has a uh, very central place. But I do prefer mouse brains uh, just because it's, uh, it's an easier source to get the material. Yeah. Sure. As it should be. Um, okay, and this disease that you're referencing, which yeah. is the majority of your work, yeah. is so I study obesity. Obesity. Um, the uh, I think what a lot of people don't understand, um, and what I didn't understand, 
said obesity is mainly a, uh, a brain disease. Mm-hmm. Um, even though obesity manifests itself in the uh, periphery, whether in the uh, limbs or in the trunk, um, it's a consequence of a dysregulation of neuronal circuits in the brain, um, whether to tell you to eat more than appropriate or to move less than appropriate. Mm-hmm. So when you look at obesity as a disease, um, the vast majority of those genes that are regulated by obesity happen to only reside in the brain. Uh, so I study obesity in the brain. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's something I didn't know about obesity. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so focusing on pre-Cambridge stuff. Sure. Um, how did you get inspired to start working on obesity? Yeah, uh, it, was, it was an absolute fluke. Uh, okay. my, uh, my background was in viral immunology. Um, so I had thought I was going to do my PhD in HIV immunology. Uh, I was forced to do a second rotation uh, and uh, decided I wanted to do something that was completely different from what I was, what I knew. Uh, instead of primary cells, I wanted to do mouse work. Um, instead of uh, viruses, I wanted to do something weird like obesity. Um, so I found this lab uh, and it's just, it was great. Um, loved it, loved the, uh, the mentor, uh, loved the projects. And even though there seemed to be a little bit of a, uh, a learning curve, um, I felt that it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's ultimately what sort of drove me into the field. Very so, cool. So very serendipitous. And why did you want to do something so different just to shake things up? Uh, yeah, so when, you, when you're forced to do another rotation, uh, I went about it as the idea that, well, I'm, I'm clearly not going to join this new lab. So I might as well be exposed to, or at least uh, learn a couple techniques that you know I, I don't currently have, uh-huh. and the uh, the best chances of that happening are going into the lab that does something completely different than what I um, had done. Okay. So that's what I that's what I went in. Uh huh. Yeah. And then what about obesity made you stick with it as like your field of study for the next six ish years? Uh, so, so I was lucky. I, I, I got out in three. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lucky. I feel like that's a euphemism for a smart, right? You have to be lucky uh, <laughs> in science. <laughs> put it put it that way. Okay. Um, uh, but um, let's see. What, what drew me to it? So... So I, like you, was um, a little fascinated with how the brain was able to regulate all this, uh, this obesity um, and cause the obesity. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a really famous story where they discovered really obese mice in a mouse colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also similarly discovered really uh, obese you know, children. The, these children would grow to 200 pounds um, by the time they were eight or nine. It's very, very obese. Um, and the, the, it's, I think, sometimes easy to um, discount obesity as an issue with, um, I don't know, uh, it's of, of, the, of weak will, mm-hmm. um, where people say, oh, you should just <clears throat> eat less and become less obese which is true right Uh, but there are clearly genetic underpinnings to obesity Mm -hmm. where if you lock up food for these uh these children 
they will tear at the cupboards, mm -hmm. um, you know, until their fingers are bleeding and continue to do so to get at the food. Um, there's something much deeper there. And so what I discovered was um, that a lot of the, uh, the genetics, the genetic mutations that mouse experience, mice experience and humans experience, a lot of those monogenetic forms cause ex extreme obesity. Um, and from that, you're able to sort of piece together what those genes do in a physiologic um, sort of neuronal control of uh, the endocrine system and why it is those genes are so important in um, you know, non-obesity and perhaps how to prevent obesity or cure obesity. Very interesting. So is that the kind of question that you're asking at the end of the day throughout all your research is what is a cure for this or are you just trying to understand it in and of itself? Um, I think both, right? I think the, uh, the problem with basic science or a, a very common criticism is that, well, you're understanding things maybe a little better, but you're no, you're no closer to the cure, which mm. is fair. Um, but so, so I'll give you an example. The current project that I'm working on is looking at the, uh, the most common uh, cause of monogenetic form of obesity, which is um, due to a, uh, an MC4R uh, mutation. So what that is, is just you have a mutation in this receptor uh, in the melanocortin system. And so if you have that mutation, tend to eat more just because the levers to sort of try to... Uh, cause you to break down the, or sorry, the levers to slow down the eating, they're broken. Mm -hmm. So you still have that motivation to eat. Why that's important is certain treatments like, um, uh, like gastric bypass, they don't work for these individuals, um, but a lot of these individuals become extremely obese. Mm -hmm. And so it's, very important to know if an individual has one of these monogenic forms of obesity because you may try to cure them with this uh, surgery, but it's not going to work because mm -hmm. of their genetic background. And so um, knowing that is is very important in their uh, sort of life and how they approach um, losing that weight. Uh, so. Our current uh, project is looking at these most common forms of genetic, um, uh, sorry, the most common forms of MC4R mutation in an English population, mm -hmm. seeing what the consequences of all these mutations are in the laboratory uh, through cellular-based assays to see if the signaling still works for the melanocortin system. And then we're cross-referencing that to the uh, the patient files of those individuals with the mutations to see if these individuals are obese when they start developing obesity and if it's a uh, heritable thing. Mm. Um, so hopefully we're going to recall them in clinic and see if we can uh, get some more samples from them to analyze as well as better advise them on their uh, their current body habit is whether it is obese or not fascinating yeah that's very cool um but i have a question so sure uh i was reading your abstract yeah and apparently obesity at least in the u.s is a problem that has like gotten significantly worse over the past couple of decades yeah something absolutely. Like that. um but if this is a primarily genetic disease or genetically kind of inspired or whatever uh how is it that it's increasing over time? 
Yeah, so so genetics plays a very important role. Um, that said, in the last 40, 50 years, um, I'd say the, uh, the obesogenic <laughs> environment um, has completely overwhelmed anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the food today uh, compared to 60 years ago, it's softer, it's very nutrient dense, it's very tasty. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to walk to sort of gain access to that food, mm -hmm. right? So being exposed to all this cheap, highly palatable, um, uh, ubiquitous food is driving the obesity epidemic. Now there are certain individuals that are predisposed to becoming obese because of these um, rare monogenic forms. Mm -hmm. But again, this may be only one to 2% of the population uh, with you know extreme obesity uh, from single gene mutations being maybe a handful, two handfuls um, of the world population. But we're talking about you know 30 to 60 to 70 percent of the population and that's all due to sort of the uh, obese environment um there may be some genetic uh underpinnings that mm -hmm. you know predispose me to obesity over you mm -hmm. um but that being said it's it's less significant than anything else where it does come in uh, to sort of play a role is by understanding what genetic mutations, which genetic mutations cause obesity, you know which systems and which genes are important in regulating obesity or energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. Then you can sort of map out how it is that the brain knows how obese or not obese the, the body is and how it exerts a obese or anorectic uh, program. So the hope then is to really capitalize on the, uh, the brain's own anorectic responses and maybe uh, you know, uh, exaggerate it a little bit so that we lose a little bit more weight than we would have without that extra could be a pill, it could be a shot, whatever it is. Um, but we want to identify that pathway um, or that target that really allows us uh, through our body's own you know, systems to lose that weight. Mm -hmm. And what is currently the like state-of-the-art method of doing so? So uh, I, I think the, uh, the common uh, perception is that nothing really works outside of gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. um, that has... Uh, that definitely has the uh, the most um, uh, benefit out of any of the treatments. So obesity, there isn't a uh, an obesity pill currently on the market that works really well. Mm -hmm. um, gastric bypass, interestingly, isn't a, a uh, so. If you ask a surgeon how gastric bypass works, they'll say that it's a it's a mechanical issue where uh, you you know replace a part of the small intestines or uh, you make the stomach smaller. And so mechanically you have less area or less volume to either absorb or store the, uh, store the, uh, the food. And so you feel full, um, so you eat less. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be the case just because current research there uh, shows that even if um, a gastric bypass is botched and you don't have that mechanical um, decrease in volume, it still works. Um, research in that area sort of shows that 
a lot of the effects from gastric bypass seem to be from the the endocrine uh, change in our bodies in response to it. So our brains integrate uh, hormones and signals from the rest of the body. A large part of it is the, uh, the GI system, including the stomach. A lot of the hormones that are changed from gastric bypass will stimulate the brain to sort of exert its anorectic signals to lose weight. Um, so far, for, far from it being a mechanical change in how our intestines work, rather it's a, uh, a change in the, uh, the, the, I guess, composition and diversity of hormones that are released by our guts that signal to our brain that then exert an anorectic response. Interesting. Yeah, so that has certain groups really interested because, you know, why have a gastric bypass if you can functionally have a gastric bypass in a pill right. by just foregoing the surgery yeah. and stimulating the circuits. So a lot of groups, um, and I've collaborated with some of them, are looking at that exact question. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, there are some, some interesting leads, uh, that are f kind of far from being approved weight loss regimens, I would say. Okay. Um, but there are definitely promising, uh, agents that are used that have clinically been shown to lose, uh, to cause individual obesity individuals to lose weight, mm. significant amounts of weight, um, as well as in obese, uh, rodents. So it's definitely in the pipelines. Um, and I think it's something that's gonna, gonna change the, uh, the game in the future. Wow. Yeah. But no idea of like approximately when things will start going on the market, right? Yeah. So, so I'll say that, um, a, uh, project that I was working on for one of these, uh, combination treatments, um, we were working with, uh, with Metamune and yeah, they were really excited. Um, about it because they held the rights to the drug um but uh i don't know we had to sign some papers and the hope was for them to like push that drug onto the market it's uh the problem is a lot of these are sort of twice daily injections uh which is a bit rough um so i don't know where their team is on that issue mm. but um could come to market in the next uh, five years, I'd say. Um, so it takes a while, but um, a another drug that has gotten a lot of, um, I guess, press in our in our world is uh, GDF fifteen, and it's something that all the big pharma companies are pushing for, and where a lot of the research is focused on right now. So there are definitely uh, target drugs in the works. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say that's that's where the future of the field is. With the ideal being pill form, something easy that people can take Absolutely. on a daily basis. Absolutely. And this might be unrelated, but I'm just curious. Yeah. What is it about an injection that is easier to work than a pill? Like why are those two forms of intake yeah. not so compatible? So if you think of a pill, the pill uh, you take through your mouth, right? Um, it has to travel through your entire GI system and it would have to be absorbed at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so if it is absorbed at some point, uh, it's, <laughs> you have to make sure that it gets through the stomach uh, relatively intact and doesn't degrade through 
um, the acids there. Um, once it's absorbed, almost all, all the blood flow goes through the liver and the liver is really the, uh, the place where it sort of tries to detox everything, including drugs um, and toxins. And so it would have to get through that first pass metabolism in the liver. So once it gets through that, then it can get to the actual arteries and be distributed throughout, including the brain. Um, it's really hard to sort of create a drug that is efficacious to that point uh, where it gets there versus an injection, especially if it's an IV injection where it goes straight to your veins and it can go straight to your uh, brain right away. So it's much easier with an injection. Um, and drugs confuse the hell out of me and then the drug development uh, does as well. Um, but it's, 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 it seems to be a very complicated thing. Um, so pill form is optimal, but it takes a while to get there. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's unrelated. I was just yeah, no curious. That's <laughs> super interesting. Um, I wanted to ask about what might be considered the opposite of obesity, sure. namely anorexia, yeah. um, other diseases like that. Um, do they work in similar ways on kind of a neural level? Um, have you ever studied those? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, so I haven't studied anorexia, but absolutely, um, they're all in the brain. Um, it becomes a little more complex uh, when you're looking at something like anorexia, just because it's it's hard to replicate it in mice, and I think that may be a consequence of their sort of um, their higher level functioning, not being as developed as ours. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas obesity, it's, it's more of a, uh, a, I guess, uh, lizard brain, um, revolving, uh, function. That said, a lot of the, uh, the hormones that are important in regulation of energy balance, um, they seem to be flipped between obesity and anorexia. Mm. So perhaps the, uh, the most important hormone is leptin. Uh, leptin is the way by which our brain knows how obese or how thin um, the body is. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the brain doesn't automatically just know um, how much fat is on board. Uh, the way to think about it is uh, our fats are cells that are active. Uh, they produce, among other things, leptin in proportion to its fat stores. So the level of your circulating and leptin right now is determined by how much fat you have on board. And based on that, based on how much leptin the brain sees, the brain that knows, oh, this individual has a lot of fat on board if there's a lot of circulating leptin, or this individual has no fat on board with no circulating leptin. So you can imagine in a case like anorexia, it's very little fat on board, mm -hmm. and so leptin is very low. Mm -hmm. um, there's a very clear evolutionary drive uh, when leptin is low to sort of push that individual to eat, right? Because mm -hmm. if they're starving, if you're star starving on the Serengeti, and you're going to fall down and die. There's a very clear evolutionary, very e evolutionary advantage for you to go hunting and to eat. Um, and so that's why some of the mutations where if you mutate leptin, you have basically zero leptin and zero fat um, on board that the brain thinks, then you become ravenously hungry and you go after everything. 
On the flip side of that is if you have a lot of obese tissue, then you have you produce a lot of leptin. Your brain's like, shit, we have a lot of leptin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should like slow down and everything. Um, but clearly there's less of an evolutionary drive there just because you know, the consequences of obesity are much more insidious and no one really dies in the acute setting from uh, from having too much energy on board. Mm -hmm. um, but there is that expectation that the brain will maintain homeostasis to lose weight. But because, um, you know, clearly we don't uh, and people become obese and stay obese or become more obese, then there is a breakdown in that system at some point. And that's what we're trying to figure out. The same thing happens in anorexia, but you have this added component of perhaps executive functioning. I don't know, mm -hmm. um, but that's that's definitely an area of study that's that's uh, it's very interesting and difficult. I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, before we finish up, sure. I have something of a curveball question for you, which Love is outside it. of your domain, but I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it, because clearly you're thinking about obesity on a daily basis. Um, so it seems like in the past maybe five years or so, movements toward body positivity have been more and more common, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious about whether you think alongside these movements comes any kind of complacency, because obviously um, gaining weight is something that can be harmful in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily at the core of the movement or something like that. But I'm just curious as to how you think these uh, kind of growing ideas relate to kind of the more scientific health yeah. aspects of the question. So I think that's a really interesting question, right? Um, I think it points to the fact that obesity, like a lot of other diseases, are it's a multidisciplinary disease. It's not just a disease suffered or felt in the hospital or in the lab, um, but it's felt everywhere. So one of the consequences of obesity, especially childhood obesity, which has gone through the roof um, recently, is that you know kids are bullied for their weight, um, and that's a social consequence that I think this movement is you know attempting to address that social component of obesity as a disease. I think that's great. Um, because why tack on another sort of detriment of the disease that we can, can sort of prevent from being tacked mm -hmm. on, right? So mm -hmm. that's great. Um, it's, it's interesting because uh, in the lab, you can, there's a genetic, genetically obese mouse model. Um, and so just what that means is there's an obese mouse mm -hmm. uh, from a genetic mutation that doesn't suffer from any of the metabolic diseases from being obese. So, you know, obesity itself, I think a lot of people uh, debate whether it's an actual disease or not. Mm -hmm. You don't really die from obesity, right? You just die from the consequences of obesity. Well, this mouse shows that you can be obese without having any of the metabolic consequences of obesity. So if that's the case, then, you know, is obesity really a disease or is it something that we should look at that carefully, right? Clearly that mouse has a genetic mutation that causes it to be that way, but I think it 
points in an interesting fact that not everybody with obesity will develop uh, diabetes or the various diseases that uh, cause it to be sort of medically very harmful. Um, so when you look at the population in the United States and you see that you know close to 70% of the population is overweight or obese, I think that's a, uh, it's a terrifying uh, prospect because even if only 50% of them get diabetes, uh, that's, that's quite a large chunk of the population. So you're in this sort of quandary where you want to dissuade people from becoming obese at the macro level mm -hmm. because it sort of, uh, it will adversely affect the, the entire nation but on an individual level, you don't want to add to their burden of being obese in the first place. And there are instances where, you know, there aren't medical um, uh, sort of consequences of obesity per se. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that, I'm going to make a shameless plug, but I think research is key here where if you're able to solve for cure obesity, um, you know, in the lab and you're able to translate that to the clinic side, then people can make that decision to no longer be obese. Um, and hopefully if the stigma of being obese socially is, um, lightened, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, the, the irreparable damage, social damage to them wouldn't have been done and they can sort of, um, take the benefits of the 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 scientifically uh, discovered me medical drugs uh, or treatments and be whole people mm -hmm. um, going forward um, even if they're not technically thin per se so very roundabout answer no, um, no, no, but no, that, <laughs> you got to all the points that i wanted to and you plug research, which is kind of research is important. What we're trying to do on this channel, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, 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 your research in particular is super important. So, seriously, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, thank you for having me. I can't wait to see what you come up with in the next two years. Me too. Gonna me get too. a new drug on the market. <laughs> Definitely not. We'll see. <laughs> One can hope. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>